Welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Batts. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing I'm doing pretty well. Um, focusing on uh, being, uh, you know, new year, new me. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, by which, I mean, I'm going to try and see as many new me repast movies as I can. Hey. That's... I stole that joke. That's somebody, oh. else's, somebody else's joke from uh-huh. Twitter, but or from Blue Sky. I can't remember. Well, if it makes um, you feel any better, I would absolutely buy that you said <laughs> that that you created that joke. Um, no, I do have something on my mind, but I I want our well, we have a you and I have a guest who is just like you said. Yeah, yeah it's just Scott. It's really yeah. the the third chair of the show. Uh, but in my head, because I I don't know, I used to like joke that i had ocd and then i started feeling like oh that's unfair to people who actually have ocd yeah. but then you took i a think good, i might actually yeah have took a good long work so um yeah it, so in my head if there can only be two hosts and one like at a time so the third yeah. person is always the guest even if it's scott it. but anyway i do have something i want to talk about normally we do that before we bring in the guest but i want uh scott to weigh in on this oh, so out. uh uh Welcome, third chair, uh, Scott Nye. Hello. So, how are you, Scott? Fantastic. How are you? Uh, Fantastic. I'm good. Fantastic. Oh man. Um, I'm good. Yeah. I just uh, I just got back from Sundance, and congratulations. Oh, boy, are my arms tired. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, usually you have to say I just flew back in order for right. that joke to work. I just got back. You could have, you know, you could have run here. Right. Yeah. Boy, my legs tired. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, Last, so I, I, I've been going to Sundance. I've gone to every in-person Sundance since 2016, making this my seventh. Um, last year, my sixth, uh, I noted that one of my favorite venues that Sundance used to use every year, which is the, uh, it's called the Mark, the something something racquetball club. It's a guy's name. I can't remember what it what it is. Uh, but they literally turned like a basketball racquetball court into a screening room. And I saw a lot of great stuff there. I like uh, things going in that direction. Um, <laughs> what? As I opposed like to the other way around. In that direction. Yeah. Um, Get this athletic shit out of the way. <laughs> uh, but what's funny is like you'd go to like an eight thirty a.m. movie, and it was just that one court they had blocked off so people who like belong to the racquetball club and like use the exercise like there are still people like on the indoor jogging track and stuff okay. like like as you're waiting to get in to see like you know uh extremely wicked shockingly evil and vile or something like that um uh so but they last year they stopped using it and then this year they stopped using uh what uh Scott, who's been to Sundance in the past, might remember is the Yarrow. It, yeah. It then became the Park Avenue screening room. Okay. Um, they stopped using that, uh, which... Have they replaced these with other venues? No, they, but yeah. This shocking. Is what, I mean, they opened the Ray back in 2018, but okay. that's, that's still... I would say that's that's been long enough that that's one of the regular sure. venues. Um, but uh, so the Yarrow, or the Park Avenue, was, was known in later years, closing... Sucked because that was a that was one they used as split some public screenings and some press and industry yeah, screenings. Yeah. They would do like the big ticket press and industry screenings. I would you know I saw like uh, uh, Call Me by Your Name in that room. I saw Landline, which that's a whole other that's a whole other like <laughs> side discussion. Like the movies that are a big deal and big ticket at Sundance and then 
get completely forgotten. Sure. Yeah. But it was Landline at the time, like, Julian Robespierre had had a big indie hit with Obvious yeah. Child. Landline was her follow-up, and Jenny Slate was in it again. It was a big ticket at Sundance that year. For sure. And I, th- I thought it was a fine movie, but it kind of just... Uh, Fell off the radar. No one remembers Landline. Anyway, the point is, so that's a that's a loss because now it meant, means that there's one fewer PNI screening, and even the biggest yeah. the biggest ones are limited to how many seats are in the the Holiday One or whatever the biggest theater there is. Uh, but so they've they've lost two venues and not replaced them. I think uh, I can't remember if this is on the podcast or not, but. Um, uh, TIFF is also down a, a net two venues yeah. since um, since COVID. They've closed three and opened one, and the one they op- the one they added is like great for convenience geographically, but it is like there's maybe three good sight lines in the entire theater, mm. and like um, you know I saw Zone of Interest there, and I still love the movie, but I'm like looking down I'm looking down at the screen from the side. Yeah. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's not the point. The point is like down venues which means they're down probably down overall movies that they're showing i know that's true of tiff that they show fewer movies i don't know if that's i haven't done the math on sundance uh here on uh here in los angeles we lost the la film festival altogether 2018 was yep. the last one afi has gone from eight days to five days i think yeah that was um, even a pre-pandemic thing i want to say i i think you're right but i yeah. can't remember yeah but um and maybe this is an episode, a full episode, but like film festivals based on my anecdotal <laughs> evidence just seem to be contracting. Sure. Um, I don't know. What do you guys think about that? I feel like that is a full episode because I feel yeah. like it's part and parcel with contemporary cinema contracting. And, you know, I've read a lot of articles saying that there's just fewer buys happening at festivals and that it's just, there's just less money to go around for movies of that scale. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I mean it's a it's it's a bummer for for many reasons. Uh, I don't know, Tyler. Do you have any thoughts as someone who has not have been to I don't know zero of these festivals? It's like you went to something at AFI Fest once. But. Um, oh, I think I might have. I don't yeah. remember what. Um, but uh, well, let me ask you this because because I don't know much about these festivals. But as Scott was mentioning, like there's fewer buys happening. Do you feel like maybe as the do you feel like the in, the festivals have shifted a little bit from press and industry into more consumer stuff? And as such, maybe there's a little bit less interest on the part of consumers as opposed to industry. Um, do you mean like, <clears throat> like... Like people that just attend the festival that have nothing to do with the industry. But there's still... at something like Sundance. Still, most of those movies arrive at Sundance without distribution. Okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, there's, there's For some... sure the majority. There's a couple that have it, but yeah. And sometimes there are movies that you find out get get picked up like days before they premiere. Yeah, you that know? happens, yeah. But... Yeah, I remember seeing, um, I guess this would have been 2019, Native Son, and HBO had picked it up right before and, and apparently had, I don't know, they must have had someone on site to rewrap a DCP and added a... Uh, they had the HBO logo on it, like, oh, yeah. 24 hours after they, yeah. like, acquired it, which is pretty impressive. Um, well, I guess from that standpoint, as is always the case these days, I find myself wondering if the, the rise of streaming 
has made a difference in some way. Like, these movies are like, oh, these are the big movies. And, like, let's all go see these movies uh, before everyone else. These big movies. Like, well, are they going to be big if they're just shown on HBO? Like, is, is, is all of this... I mean, just like film itself, is all of it less an event, less of an event now. So people aren't quite so excited to go. I'm not sure. Like, festivals, they're a culture in and of themselves. And it's a culture that I really don't know much about. I mean, obviously outside of the International Christian Film Festival, (laughs) which is its own culture of people that are at a festival but don't watch movies. (laughs) Uh, yeah, I, I do feel like this could be a whole episode yeah. at, at some point, but um, it makes me sad. But also, I'm like trying not to be like the old man and say things are better back. Like this is just this is just what the 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 landscape is right now. I sure. guess I think it's um, uh, you know what I'll be that old man. Uh, people being able to see more movies that was better. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean. It's still the festival, like, it's the people who are going to the festival anyway. It's sure. those people. It's not, like... Um, I would say the, the biggest one that bums me out is AFI being shorter. Because I feel like AFI... I don't know. I haven't done the math on if they're showing fewer movies overall. But it seems like these days, every movie they show, they show once. Yeah, there Whereas are a couple. They had multiple screenings of things. Yeah, there are a couple they'll show twice, but for the most part. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of, the, that's one of my favorite things about something like sundance yeah where like i you go in with a schedule but suddenly everybody's talking about you know uh the tale with laura dern yeah and like you like rearrange your schedule to go to the pni of this movie that everyone's buzzing about because they've already seen it it's already screened a couple times um yeah i I miss that about afi about about uh having more flexibility and seeing having multiple opportunities to see movies incidentally Uh, and you have a story okay. that I don't think I've told on the show before. Okay. From the last time I was at ICFF, um, I uh, was presenting at the awards. I was presenting the award for uh, Best Actor. And uh, as they know, when I, whenever I present, I take the opportunity to say some things. And so I... Uh, to give him what for? <laughs> give him a good scolding, a good chiding? Kind of, yeah. Um... <laughs> And uh, and I had told the guy in charge, I was like, well, obviously, I feel like I got to say something. And he was like, I wouldn't have it any other way. I was like, oh, good, I'm glad. And so uh, it was the 10th anniversary of the festival. And so they're really like playing that up. So as I went up, I was like, you know, it's the 10th anniversary of uh, this festival. But do you know what it's the 50th anniversary of? The Godfather. And I was like, by a show of hands, how many people here have seen The Godfather? And about half of them put their hands up. I was like, all right. So that's half the number of people. That's half the audience at a film festival. That's a problem. And so we, uh, so I kind of talked about that movie and the importance of seeing movies um, as a, as a, uh, as a way of just getting to know movies better and making movies better. Um, And then finally I was like, The Godfather also uh, won Best Actor. Speaking of Best Actor. (laughs) And so that's how I transitioned subtly back Um, into my thing. 
Well, I think that's a, a, a good place to take a break and sure. uh, talk about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. I use them each and every day of my life. Normally, I have a lot of things to choose from, but we're recording much earlier in the day than we usually do. So I can only say I listened to, I was listening to an album called uh, Obsession Destruction by a band called Chained to the Bottom of the Ocean. And it was very good and very heavy. Uh, it sounds like a like you would imagine a band called Change the Bottom of the Ocean would sound like. Um, and uh, really liked it. Sounded great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. Uh, but if you go to, if you use the offer code pretension at checkout, you get one third off that already low, low price. And no shipping charges. So please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? or the friends you find along the way. Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, we're back. And uh, we're ready to, to, to jump in to today's topic, which I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you what the topic is right now. First, I want you to take a glance down at your MP3 player, your smartwatch, whatever your... Which will uh, also tell you the topic of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't read too far. Yeah, yeah, Just read right. the episode number, yeah. and you'll notice that the episode number ends in a zero. And yet, you'll notice that the number before that zero is not a zero and is also not a five. And what that means is that this is a profile uh, episode. Uh, this is uh, where we profile the career of a film-related artist who um, has has passed away recently. Um, and uh, today we are taking on the uh, late uh, great British filmmaker, um, at least... Uh, one person said the greatest British filmmaker didn't like uh, didn't like Jonathan Rosenbaum say something like that that sounds like a Jonathan Rosenbaum <laughs> yeah just like yeah. Uh, just a thumb in the eye to Hitchcock I guess um, maybe David Lane uh, yeah yeah um, but uh, yeah we we're talking about the late Terrence Davies um, which does mean, yes, as, as Scott has pointed out to me privately, we've done a lot of men in a row <laughs> for these <laughs> profiles but like look I can't I can't control who dies. I mean, yeah. like, I guess well, you don't want me to. You know, <laughs> yeah. you're a free agent out here in the world. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I guess. Jane, look, Jane Campion, watch your back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just women get to die, I guess. <laughs> um, no. Uh, yeah, I guess. I mean, we did. We did Straub Huillet, but that yeah. was because Straub died. <laughs> yeah. Not Huillet died in 2014, I think. So I cannot remember when was the last time we did. We profiled uh, the career of a woman. But I mean. That's just who's dying, I guess. Um, Well, it's also your fixation on (laughs) keeping it someone who died between these episodes. Yes, that's true. Again, that's my OCD (laughs) thing. Yeah, Tyler, I'm not going to say who, but Tyler suggested we do someone who had died before the cutoff for our (laughs) next one. And I was like, in my head, I was like, we can't. We can't do that. (laughs) That person died too early. Well, and Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that rule. I just forgot when 
yeah. he died because, as I said to you the other day, time doesn't mean much right. for me right now. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but after because this um, this is episode eight eighty. Then we'll do. We already know who we're doing for eight ninety. Um, again, we won't reveal that, but you know, follow me on Letterbox and you'll be able to figure it out probably. Uh, but then we'll have a twenty week period between profiles. Yeah, ladies, I, you got time. Exactly. Yeah, but I, I always um, enjoy those twenty week breaks that happen once a year or so because I get to catch up on my unwatched Blu-ray collection. Sure. Because <laughs> I spend, otherwise I spend so much time doing research uh this time because it was easy to do in terms of the uh uh the length of Darren Stavey's filmography and also its uh availability I, I pulled a Scott and I and I went uh complete oh yeah <laughs> I, I I watched everything because it's all it's all out there um so we're gonna go chronologically as we always do do we have any thoughts I guess I want to say like I had only seen two Terrence Davies movies before he died. I had only seen The Deep Blue Sea and Benediction, which I guess was his last one. Yeah. Um, which are kind of the bookends of what I think of as like the second half of his career. Because there is, we're going to get to a point where there's... There's a pretty big gap. There's an 11 yeah. year break between yeah. narrative features. Yeah. There's one documentary in there, but there's an 11 year break and which is broken by The Deep Blue Sea. Yeah. It's the first, and then Benediction was his last. Um, and I I absolutely loved Benediction on first watch. The Deep Blue Sea is a movie that I was... I, not knowing anything about him going in, I was almost... And also me being over 10 years younger than I am now, was almost a bit like caught off guard by his earnestness as a filmmaker. Mm. And The Deep Blue Sea took... A, a, a while it took it took a second for me to really appreciate because um, there's just there's just so little irony I think yeah. to his movies um, and I like I love that that now but uh, so yeah I was very eager um, it makes it sound like I was glad he died but I, <laughs> I was sad he died but I was very uh, eager for the chance to um, to see uh, how he became. Who, the the filmmaker that I that I knew and um, uh, I was well rewarded. I don't know. Does anybody else have any? What were your thoughts before we embarked on this? What did you know of Terrence Davies when he died? Um, yeah, I had seen five of his films, his last four ones, and I caught Long Day Close at the New Bev a long time ago. Um, and I was always kind of mixed on him as a filmmaker. I think I remain a little mixed. I Deep Blue Sea was the first one I saw, and I loved it immediately. I mean, earnestness has never been a hurdle for me. I, that's something I appreciate, and which I think is more due to his generation than anything. Or that you're relaying that reminded me of an anecdote Rooney Mara told when she was prepping to do Carol. She'd already shot Song to Song uh, with Terrence Malick, who was you know grew up in the '40s and '50s. And she was like, what's something about the period that you can tell me? And he's like, people just spoke more directly back then about themselves, about their feelings, about all that kind of stuff. Um, and that, I think that's something that Davies really brought throughout his career. Um, so, yeah, I, I was really glad to see some of the earlier stuff and most especially House of Mirth, which, of course, we'll get to. Oh, OK. Uh, I'm interested to get to House of Mirth because it sounds like we might have slightly different points of view. Um, but let's uh, I don't know, Ty, do you have any thoughts going in? Yeah, so... I'm not up until this 
I had not seen any of his films. I was aware of him as like a, a very specific type of British filmmaker, not like Hitchcock, not like David Lane. Mm-hmm. The kind of beat, like if you were to tell the average person, uh, like what kind of movies would a not Christopher Nolan British filmmaker <laughs> make? This is, like, I think, what they would say. Like, these sort of conversational, usually period pieces. Um, so that's kind of all I knew. Uh, sadly, I've only seen uh, four of his films. I wanted to try and see five so that I could see one from every decade. Um, but I only saw four. Um, but I think that was enough for me to know that uh, he is now one of my favorite filmmakers of all time nice uh well let's jump into uh his short films at the beginning of his career they they have been compiled as the terence davies trilogy because they are all autobiographical yeah and somewhat chronological yeah uh and they fit nicely like they're together they're about an hour 45 minutes yeah yeah uh but um i watched them as separate shorts Uh, um the first one is called children um and uh yeah there's the first most of the first half of his career like it seemed like he was almost strictly an autobiographical filmmaker um and so yeah children is about a uh young young boy who um is catholic school i guess goes goes to catholic school and is yeah, some well, kind of religious Yeah, but he's, like, um, a lot of what you'll see in his early autobiographical work is gay characters, because Terrence Davies uh, was was gay, and... Um, I was looking the, that up, actually. Yeah? I would venture to say he was asexual, because oh. he'd been with women, didn't really like that, and then he's on record as saying, like, he tried men, and oh, then he's okay. like, he goes... Uh, it wasn't really for me. And so I, I, so like, I guess he did do that, but. Yeah, that's interesting. Seem, didn't seem super interested in yeah. either one. He, um, at least in the interviews I saw, he identified as gay, but had such a fraught relationship with that identification. Yeah. And you see that in a lot of his films oh, that yes. um, he couldn't really settle into any kind of like steady relationship and yeah. pretty much became celibate after a point. Yeah. Um, and I, I think what's great about these films i mean besides just like and i'm gonna have a hard time telling apart the short films because i did kind of watch them very close together um and they're all kind of the same style they're all like full frame black and white very Mm -hmm. autobiographical um but you really see him explore that fraught relationship with his sexuality and like really feeling torn about his own comfort within that about his place in society with that um and I think that's what made these the strongest of me of all his autobiographical films. They felt a little bit more uh, self-reflective than uh, the feature ones he'll get into. They're more kind of torn and complicated. By the uh, way, I, I can't think of a more British way of, of saying that you're, you know, either uncomfortable with that or or just like not interested than like, like, oh, hey, here's an entire sexuality. And it's like, that's not for me. Yeah. That sounds very British to me. Um, in any case, uh, yeah, children, we'll start, yeah, children uh, is about a child who 
I don't know. I don't know if the child's gay, but he's definitely bullied for being uh, not enough of a masculine boy. Yeah. Um, well, and the way he looks at some of the other boys too, there's an indication that there's an attraction, a lingering quality. Yeah. I haven't seen the short films, but um, you'll you'll see it in later movies. Yeah. But what, what one thing that I think stuck struck, stuck stuck <laughs> stuck out to me uh, about watching these short films, only knowing Deep Blue Sea and Benediction. And uh, Tyler, as you were describing his work, a lot of his work is very talky. Mm-hmm. The short films, especially the first two, a lot of the dialogue is sort of like off camera. Yeah. There's like it, you can you can see him. You can actually watch these three short films, and as much as they do work together, you can see a progression of him becoming more comfortable with film language and, sure. and what he's willing to try. There's the child and Madonna and Child. The second is the second one are are often more abstract, a lot of like off-screen voices and, and long shots. Um, I think part of that, though, is just like budget of like, you're shooting less sync sound, <laughs> basically. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, so then, yeah, Madonna and Child is, um, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, Madonna and Child and Death and Transfiguration have the same actor playing. That feels right, but I didn't check. Um, I guess I can do so now. I, I could be wrong, but... Um, uh, yeah, Madonna and Child is, uh, he's older and he's, uh, a, a clerk and he's taking care of, uh, Same actor, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, is this the one where his mother dies in? in I'm pretty sure, yeah. In Death and Transfiguration. Yeah, I think it's, his mother dies. And then Death and Transfiguration, the third one, uh, which is one of my favorite of his films now, um, you really see his ambition grow because yeah. Death and Transfiguration takes place in two different timelines um, of both the older him and then the much older him on his deathbed um, uh, dying. Uh, you see that, and also the thing that really comes to fore, it's been there the whole time, but like musicality and sound design are so huge to him. Yeah. There's, there are so many, especially in his early work, So many there are so many scenes of group sing-alongs or there's just a choral song on the soundtrack and it's again that earnestness of not like it's definitely like bold choices they're not, there's not something subtle about the way he right. uses music in his movies but it's uh often very beautiful often group sing-alongs i i i, I um i i feel like as watch i was watching as, as i was watching these movies being like hey this is beautiful but also as you were talking about scott like people being different in the past i was also like kind of mourning the loss of like monoculture sure like the idea that a bunch of people could be together in a room and just all know the words to the same song like that doesn't really it reminded me of that scene from uh uh lover's rock oh um, sure which i really like right yeah yeah that's a that's a great comparison uh the british filmmaker um, so yeah, uh, Death and, but Death and Transfiguration has a lot of that um, in the music, but also, speaking of sound design, the it becomes almost a metronome in the final moments of the older hymns, like raspy, dying breaths. Become yeah, there's a there's a musicality and tempo to that that's that's uh, really, you know, uh, what's the word for mournful and uh, macabre, but but beautiful and sad at the same time yeah um so yeah I, th- those are the three they're all on the criterion channel i don't know did uh, uh 
Tyler, you didn't watch them. Scott, did you have any other observations about the trilogy? I think I was just really impressed with how fully formed he was pretty immediately because um, by this, by the time he made Children, let me double check the year it came out. Yeah, he was already kind of in his 30s and this was like almost a second career to him. Um, Because he like worked as the film's going to do it, like just as a clerk for like ten years of his um, young adult life, yeah. um, Before transitioning into the cinema, and yeah, I don't know if he made like other short films, like as a student or whatever. But like for this to be his first work, it's like I mean, it's kind of all there right away. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, actually, I I said yeah, but I don't. Like I said, I do I do see a progression. Oh, for sure. Um, No, I mean, I see progression throughout his career. I'm just saying that like you watch sometimes the early short films by major filmmakers and they're much less polished than children is okay. like uh, the, the yeah. one that the part that struck me right away is they're like a part in the bus, I think, or the subway. No, it's, it gets a bus because above round where you're just like watching a character from behind looking out a window and there's like kind of a chorus going on behind it. It's just like the patience to stick with that shot. Yeah. Um, and this wasn't like a time when slow cinema was as fashionable as it was today as it yeah. is today. Um, it's really breathtaking. Yeah. And, and back of the head shots weren't as fashionable as they are now. I'm getting yeah. a little, I, This is a total aside, um, but I haven't done a movie journal in a while, so I haven't had a chance to talk <laughs> about this. But uh, I went into All Dirt Road's Taste of Salt really expecting to love it. It seemed like it was up my alley. But it feels like it's a little bit art house by, by numbers. Yeah, it's a fun. little bit. I like, think it, And there's so many following someone from behind and yeah. the camera trained in the back of their head and that's become such a an art house move lately uh anyway that's, that's not what this episode is about but i wanted to uh be the alder roads hater uh on, <laughs> on the podcast uh so yeah then we get into uh feature films uh his first one is distant voices still lives which uh continues the um uh the autobiographical yeah uh strain of his of his movies which is uh mostly about family life um and uh pete postlethwaite plays the uh unkind drunken father yeah it's very Um, generous of you yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah he plays well the drunken part probably came pretty easily to pete postlethwaite sure uh yeah what do you have this so this is one of the ones you watched Yeah. yeah um I am furious at my current speaking limitations because I have so much to say and I want to say it all at once. Okay. Because like, it, it is overwhelming to me how wonderful this movie is. And the, all four movies that I saw, I loved all of them. And it should be noted that like the first one I watched was the house of mirth and i thought all right yeah pretty straightforward dialogue driven it's like all right i assume all of his movies are going to be like this Mm -hmm. i was wrong um because then i watched this and it's i mean there's dialogue i wouldn't say it's dialogue driven by any stretch of the imagination and it's not straightforward either um i feel like It's been a while, and, and David, you know this because uh, I pitched an episode to you. I feel like it's been a while since I've seen a filmmaker capture the essence of memory like he does. Like the way it just jumps around 
hmm. but not in a way that's jarring. Everything just flows into everything else, and it's something that we'll see in a lot of his movies, or at least, in, as far as I know, two more of his movies um, after this. And it's just, it all just blends together so beautifully. And so it's like, okay, he does memory well. And then his ability to capture the complexity of relationships and the gray area of relationships is amazing. Um, insofar as you see this abusive father who also shows a certain degree of tenderness for his kids and then you also have his kids openly wish they could kill him yeah <laughs> often to his you know and they say that to him but then when he's gone they cry like or at least one daughter cries and says i want him like i want him back and it's like that is so that is so difficult to watch it'd be so much easier if he was just totally a monster and they completely hated him you know and so but then also on top of everything else because this is not focused on any one character which could actually leave you at arm's length from the the situation the way he shoots it the type of dialogue he writes the way he orchestrates the actors you're not focused on one character you actually, or at least I did, I felt like I was another member of the family. And I was watching this the same way they were. Um, on edge, always waiting for something bad to happen, being grateful when it doesn't. And, and then, on top of everything else, um, so on Twitter, I've been doing this thing where, like, I follow... Uh, movie accounts that do like these prompts uh, prompts like you know what's the scariest movie moment you've ever seen or best performance by a pair of sunglasses or something like that <laughs> and one was um, this is a, a while back one was what's a movie that shows the power of music and I you know people were saying like Amadeus and all that I chose to say uh, Shine, uh, but that was before I watched these movies, because I could easily say the filmography of Terrence Davies. Like, you see how vital music is in these characters' lives, uh, and, but not as, like, people that want to make music, but just as an escape, as a way of being part of a community, um, a, a solidarity, bravery, um, so it's just, he manages to do all of these things effortlessly, and I'm just, while also creating beautiful frames and tableaus, and I'm just, it's just, it's just astonishing to me. I, I, I love it so much. Yeah, I mean, I... Sorry I said all that. No, no I'm glad you did, because yeah. the I struggled a bit more with these first two films, and I figured you guys would have liked them more, and I'm glad that you um, had more to say about them, and I don't... I, I also just didn't dislike them outright, so it's nothing I really want to, like, get into it about. Um, 
but I, I just, I had a harder time connecting, I think. I, mm. Part of that is I just tend not to like films about children that much. Um, but that's my own personal limitation. Uh, but I mean, the, the second half of the movie, they're all... No, out. I know. Yeah. And for a certain, and for a significant portion of the first half as well. Yeah, they're, well, they, they grow up earlier than I... Well, I, I mean, like, we do see, like, funeral stuff. Like, right. they are older. Right. Um, and then they're, from what I... So there was, like, a two-year a two gap between shooting the, the production first movie, half. Yeah. yeah, and then the second half. So they are noticeably older in the second half. Yeah. But we do see moments of them being adults in the first half. Okay. Uh, yeah, this is... Because I watched these chronologically been the longest since i've seen these oh, these yeah. early ones uh yeah and then so he follows that up with the long day closes which uh well, what do you have to say about this one um did you like it yeah yeah i, I loved it I, but i really i guess i liked the long day closes even more yeah so did i um Although I'm sure Scott hated it because it's about a boy. No, it, it's it's a more elegant film, so it goes down smooth. Yeah. It's just I don't, both times I saw it. By the end of it, I was just like, okay, I yeah. I, I like it, but it's not. And I think there's also some pure memory films. I think a lot of what the texture he builds into these films is better utilized later on. Um, Long day closes is uh, having now seen everything. If someone going to ask me for an entry point to Terrence Davies, I think I would recommend Long Day Closes. Um, presuming you like coming of age sure. <laughs> uh, movies but uh, yeah so here you've got um, the, the the Terrence Davies uh, surrogate is a, a young boy again who um, is uh, among other things obsessed with uh, going to the movies which yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, really obviously speaks to people like us it also um, and it's not super obvious about it yeah, it's not like, like it's not like Cinema Paradiso, which right. I always use as the like bad example, of an example of a bad movie that's about the magic of movies. Like Even though I know the, a lot of people like Cinema Paradiso, but I don't. I still haven't seen it. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's not worth your time. You should come over <laughs> and we'll watch it together. All right, perfect. <laughs> um, uh, one thing, just a stray observation about Long Day Closes, or just about like British life in general, like. It rains very rarely in Los Angeles. So when it rains, it's a big deal. Yeah. But when I watch, like, British, like, uh, Tyler and I are both fans of Taskmaster, the mm -hmm. British, like, uh, <laughs> comedy reality competition show. Uh, and often it'll just be raining during one of the tasks, and they just go about it. Yeah. Like, when it rains, when, it, when a place where it rains a lot, you just go about your day when yeah. it's raining. And I, I remember thinking, like, there's, there's, like, a part early on in the movie where he's just, like going to the movies and it's just pouring yeah. out. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I guess you got to just do yeah. that. You can't like, you can't be like Newman and say like, oh, I don't work. I don't work. On <laughs> yeah. Creeds. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not really one for creeds. <laughs> yeah, that's right. um, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I feel like I wouldn't say, I would say this is an entry point for a certain type of person. Cause it is, I think, in many ways, it's shot in a straightforward way, but narratively, I'd say it's almost experimental. Um, yeah. Just the way that there is no, like this is not told in order of story. It seemed to jump back and forth a lot. And I say jump, but it certainly doesn't feel like that. It's more like this swirling, just this swirling experience of 
uh, childhood. And, but as a result, I could see someone watching this and getting very frustrated, wondering, quote unquote, when it's, when the movie's going to start. Um, but, uh, so yeah, I'm not sure I would say this is a, I mean, I adore it. It's probably my favorite of the ones I saw, but yeah, that's tough. I love them all. Well, but, I, look, but yeah, you're probably right. As I said on a recent Patreon, sign up, sign up at patreon.com slash battles of pretension. Um, Despite being someone who calls myself a film critic, I am very bad at knowing what people like about movies and why. <laughs> so maybe it would be a bad entry point, but it would have been a great entry point for me. Uh, I, I think for our listeners, if you haven't seen any Terrence Davies, I do think for our listeners, this is a great entry point. Uh, it also has a lot more of those group sing-alongs. Yeah. Um, I love oh, the the neighbor lady with the drunken husband. Oh my. I was going to bring that up actually. I love um, her. It, well, yeah, it's, it's an interesting bit of texture because it's like so funny for a lot of it. And then it becomes kind of sad towards the end of yeah. the last few scenes they're in. Yeah. And, and she's it like kinda, walking him home. And he's yeah. Drunk. Yeah. And it kind of yeah. speaks like distant voices, a lot more aggressive about like the abuse environment that were yeah. very common in this era. Yeah. Um, but just kind of a general tone of cruelty. That's like, everyone kind of puts up with and is kind of amused by to a point yeah yeah yeah, yeah that's a good point because going all the way back to children you get the kids being being cruel um, yeah yeah there's yeah. there is a lot of a lot of cruelty uh, in these early movies uh this one uh also has if i'm remembering correctly and not bleeding together uh, not only does it have music but it has a lot of like you hear dialogue from movies yeah. even in scenes when yeah. he's not watching the movies yeah uh, I'm trying to remember what movies because I know I recognize uh, at least the, one of them. The Lady Killers. Okay. Like the first one we hear is from The Lady Killers um, where Alec Guinness says, I understand you have rooms to let. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's as they're setting up this boarding house situation. Right, right. Uh, yeah, there are definitely other ones that I recognized or at least one yeah. other that I recognized but I can't remember what they were yeah Amberson's um, oh yeah Amberson's is all over it yeah 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 because he's uh, it's Orson Welles talking about like men's fashion like that yeah. like the opening like five ten minutes of many of his Amberson's are among my favorite five ten minutes of cinema sure. ever yeah <laughs> so I, uh, I I love that uh, any other thoughts on the long day closes before we move into kind of kind of a new stage of his career. Yeah, I think just think it's worth noting quickly on long day closes that this was kind of the period that he identifies his life as the happiest, which is interesting. His age is from like right after his father died to when puberty onset, and like mm. then he became more troubled by his sexuality. Yeah, um, when he could just kind of live in this kind of blissful, you know, movie filled family environment. Mm. Um, and I think the film captures that without being overly sentimental about it. Like like I said, you get kind of that texture. Yeah. of unhappiness of like this was the post-war years I mean he was born in like 1945 so it was like yeah. immediately into yeah. an environment where yeah people were glad to be done with the war but they were also like, dealing with a lot of grief that they didn't really have the words for and I think the film captures that really well you do um, start to see in this film the early onset of his sexuality yeah like for sure like he, there's traces there for yeah sure. absolutely yeah. um well, his next film, 1995's The Neon Bible, is not technically autobiographical because it's an adaptation of a novel, but it's interesting. But in broad strokes, you would almost think it would yeah, be. Yeah, dovetailing off of what Scott said about being happy up until puberty, uh, this is a, a teenage boy at a very uh, 
unhappy <laughs> yeah, yeah. abusive uh, father uh, abusive father yeah year, years of his life um i will say off the top right off the bat though this is my least favorite of his i think films. it's everybody's <laughs> yeah I, it just feels like and he made uh, he made at least three films that were set in america this is the first one and i it feels like he's trying to just like lift his view of mid-century England yeah. and drop it wholesale into the 1940s American rural South and it doesn't fit. Yeah, I mean, it, I think the other ones fit better because they're kind of in the northeastern area where mm-hmm. they inherited and brought over a lot of English customs. Yeah. But yeah, to just drop it into the South. And it doesn't help that, like, the so the novel it's based on, I can't remember the writer's name, but the same guy who did Confederacy of Dunces and uh, he killed himself before his novels were ever published and, like... Um, it's uh, John Kennedy Tool. Yeah. Um, but so this one he wrote when he was like 16 years old and you can kind of see like it, it not only has the lack of general perspective and slight immaturity of that and it just like feels like every staple of like southern gothic literature is just like thrown into this book um but it also has the feeling that you have when you're 16 of like life stops at 16 you know it like it really can't see beyond that in a lot of ways and i think he's just kind of hemmed in by that and by his own lack of perspective i mean it does have Gina rounds in it so it has at least one very good performance um but yeah you know it's just a and it's his first attempt at a real narrative structure, even though it kind of has like the tapestry of a memory film. Um, so yeah, it, it just kind of doesn't work in a lot of ways. Um, the abusive father is played by Dennis Leary. Yeah. Um, and it just reminded me of like, there was a time that Dennis Leary was just regularly in movies yeah. as an actor. And then I feel like he like, I don't think it was his stand-up so much as his, he became like a television tour i think sure yeah with like first the job and then rescue me and then the one that everyone forgets about that's called like sex and drugs and rock and roll i think something mm, like that it was that very one. short-lived but um i think he became too like attached to his own like projects where he was the lead that yeah. like he no longer seemed to fit as a character actor but he used to be in movies all the yeah. time yeah um and he's not i don't think he's bad here but i also just don't think he's I don't know if it's him or if, like I said, just the rural South, just the 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 nature of Terrence Davies' dialogue just feels like it doesn't quite fit. Does in, he do his su- mouth? Does he do an accent? He's doing a southern accent, right? Yeah, is that is it? of a sort. Yeah, yeah. yeah. By uh, way of Boston. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, I guess minor spoilers. Like Pete Possum's late and distant voices still lives. He's not in the whole movie, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I'm glad I watched it and. Um, the best scenes are the group sing-alongs. There's, there's a beautiful scene where there's a, they're walking to a like a tent revival church yeah. thing. Yeah. And they're singing on the way to the church, and the camera is overhead on this small street, and then you get into the church where people are like sitting in built like rafters, and the camera is like behind the preacher, I guess, and you're seeing this like beautifully mm-hmm. uh, symmetrical, yeah. um, uh, just rows of people in this like candlelit tent at night it's very yeah. cool yeah Best i mean it has incredible moments to it I, you know terrence davis can't help it but yeah. Yeah. i do think he runs up against trying to build those into a narrative structure um that i think he gets more successful at with his next film uh, okay I'm, well, I'm definitely i didn't see that one but i'm definitely interested at the very least i i just love the idea of someone being like you know it would be perfect for this terrence davis film 
Dennis Leary. <laughs> or, well, maybe, or maybe Dan Aykroyd. Yeah, yeah well, that gets into, yeah. The difference is Dan Aykroyd's really good in yes. House of Mirth, if you ask me. He really is. Um, but it's, I mean, the House of Mirth has, like, very sideways casting. Like, very few of these people you would think of for these roles. Yeah. So let's, let's move into the House of Mirth. And I'm going to start by saying that I... And I think Tyler had the same problem. I had a hurdle to enjoying this movie. Yeah. Because the transfer that is on Paramount Plus with Showtime looks like absolute shit. Oh, that's they too bad. It, it looks no like effort a, into it. It looks like a rip from a, a PAL DVD. Like ah. it has... It, and I wonder if, like, I probably would have liked the movie more if I saw it the way it's supposed to look. Yeah. Because I, that really did hinder my enjoyment that it yeah, looks it so looked bad. Like, it looked like it was a, like a 90s TV movie. Well, like a I'm, 90s BBC TV. I'm yeah. very glad I made it to the Los Feliz 3 screening on 35mm <laughs> yeah. because it actually, in actuality, looks incredible. Okay, good, good. Uh, well, you, um, you, you guys both saw this one, so did I, but uh, Scott, it, looked like, it sounded like you had something to say. Oh, no, I mean, just by way of like introducing the general tapestry. So it's based on a novel by Edith Wharton, who also wrote, if I'm not mistaken, The Age of Innocence, right? Oh, yeah, okay. which had come out... Um, a few years before and this was kind of like the last gasp of that real like post um, Merchant Ivory era of just like very elaborate costume dramas being like kind of guaranteed films to find purchase at the American box office Mm -hmm. Um, and so this was kind of operating in that tradition and for whatever reason didn't get that kind of reception that a lot of those films did I think part of it stems from casting uh, Gillian Anderson in the lead role as Lily Bart um, who she's like this socialite who um, is unmarried, not really having any purpose in her life or any direction, very bad with money, um, and see gradually over the course of the film sees her options to uh, achieve st- and maintain status in society narrow as um, she passes over marriage proposals, pursues marriages that never come to fruition and her family support system kind of gradually crumbles and it's kind of that very archetypal um structure for any important type of story yeah um and this is one of the uh, next american set films takes place in new york at the turn of the century which is established by a title card at the very end that the i don't know about US is devastating yeah <laughs> i don't know what it is about it but like just dropping finally setting it in a plate time and a place i don't know it had an overwhelming effect on me mm-hmm. I totally agree with you, and I can't totally figure out why. I know. I've been thinking it's, about it for months now. <laughs> it's like I just had the thought of maybe like, because maybe like it's more recent than it maybe. feels like it should yeah. be. You're like, holy shit, this is in America as recently as the 1900s? Or like, it almost shit, man. kind of functions as like an obituary maybe? Kind of, oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's, um, so yeah, she, uh, Gillian Anderson plays the main role, Gillian Anderson rather, and then Eric Stoltz is kind of like the fashionable dandy that she's pursuing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was listening to an episode of This Had Oscar Buzz that they covered this episode, and that's hosted by two gay men, and they're like, is Eric Stoltz gay code in this, or is he just thin and pale <laughs> and fancy? <laughs> and I, I think he's just thin and pale and fancy. Yeah. Um, I think he's, I could see him be descri- being described as kind of a cad yeah in some ways but he's also kind of the most earnest towards her yeah and generally wants her happiness but also isn't able to because at the beginning he doesn't really have enough money for the two of them to get married even though they're in love and she's kind of like 
in a way kind of positing herself as too good for him in the way that she posits herself as too good for anyone that she encounters. Um, So the two of them are kind of the emotional core, but then Dan Aykroyd is another kind of suitor of hers who, yeah, is more trying to just take advantage of her situation, loaning her money and expecting a certain type of repayment. Yeah. Um, And then Anthony LaPaglia, who is the most kind of like viable suitor for her, but the least desirable um, until he, he becomes her only option too late in the film. And, but and he, is, he is, I think, eventually, like, pretty sympathetic towards her. Oh, for sure. But he's also very clear about his own boundaries yeah. of, like, she's gotten herself into a social position where if he takes on that kind of social debt, yeah. will become more than he can bear, despite yeah. his attraction to her. Yeah. Um, the kind of most straightforward casting is Laura Linney as her kind of like friend slash enemy in that very kind of like. If only there was a term for that. Yeah, yeah. no, right. Um, and she's amazing, of course. Of course. Um, but the film really, I think, does a good job of establishing the severity of these kind of social norms. I think the easy way out of this kind of genre is to be like, oh, haha, these foolish people yeah. giving into these strict societal rules. But like, when you get to that scene of her in Dan Aykroyd's house and he kind of brought her over mm-hmm. under the auspices of spending time with his wife. And yeah. then he's like, Oh, my wife is upstairs. And then she finds out his wife is there at all. Yeah. And she's terrified to find out that she's alone in the house with this guy. Yeah. Not only for what he could do to her physically, but for what it could mean to her reputation. Yeah. 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 Dan Aykroyd is great in, in that scene. Um, he was also just a few years later in um, Stephen Fry's, uh, Bright Young Things, which is an oh, adaptation yeah. of Evelyn Waugh's Vile Bodies, which is a great novel that I've read. Um, uh, that's, and it's weird that he did these, like, within three years, he did these two sort of, like, uh, early 20s, late, yeah. late 19th, early 20th century period pieces. He was great in both of them. And let's and not just, like, evolution. Uh, <laughs> of course. Yeah. Evolution as well. um, but then he just was like, I'm done with that kind of acting, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Um, it's too bad, because he's, he's, he's really great in this movie uh, and really terrifying in, in that particular scene i hope to get a chance someday to see it see this movie again the way it's meant to look because it was a distraction to me and i think because there's um there's there's something very straightforward about his dialogue and the way he directs actors to deliver his dialogue yeah and um it's interesting how much presentation can make something go from looking austere to looking cheap. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And I, so I, the, the movie kind of like felt cheap because it looked so shitty on Paramount Plus. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's it really was a bummer because I, I really love the movie. Um, and I like that he just like throws you in like right yeah. in the middle. Like there's no real beginning. It's like all of the relationships have, have already started. And yeah. he doesn't like write dialogue to like catch you up right um and that first scene between her and Stoltz like it's weird to describe something like that as riveting but just their little back and forth and the looks they give each other it's just like you don't need an introduction it's just so laden with meaning and what's funny is that we were talking about like the role of music in his films this one has almost none yeah well certainly i don't think anybody sings in it these aren't the singing people (laughs) exactly yeah and i feel like you know if you look at his filmography i think that's notable yeah like the way he's like yeah i'm not gonna put 
this hallmark of right, my career. Yeah. I'm not going to put that in here because these are not because that you know he uses music to show senses of unity mm -hmm. and community, and it's like that's not how these people operate. There is no unity. There is no community. It's kind of everybody for themselves. Yeah, they're very dignified about it. Yeah, that's very true. Um, I mean, a lot of what's interesting about the last half of his career is in those last four films is that he takes kind of either books or people's lives and kind of folds them into making a sort of autobiographical thing where they are as much about him as they are about the thing. Yeah. Um, this is probably the most straightforward adaptation he did and really trying to service the material. And yeah, it just it didn't really catch on with uh, critics or box office or awards. Um, maybe partially because Julian Anders was so associated with the X-Files that people just had such a hard time associating her in this kind of environment. Yeah. Um, but it really kind of damaged his career. I mean, at, from this point, he tries to get an adaptation of Sunset Song off the ground with Kirsten Dunst. That doesn't happen. He later ends up making Sunset Song with a different cast. Um, but he just, like, made so many attempts in this period to try to get something going. And the only thing he could was a documentary. Yeah, so that's... Oh, oh go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like... I don't mean to be a film Twitter basic, but I hope that like Criterion snaps up this movie. I know, same. So that it gets a good transfer. Yeah. At yeah. the very least. Yeah. And it'll get people, it'll get eyeballs on it. Yeah. Um, because. I mean, it sounds like there's a good element out there that you saw. Uh, I mean, there's yeah. a print. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure there's, the, I'm sure the negative still exists yeah. too. Yeah. And the Jillian Anderson thing, like since then, She's acted in all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and, and now so she's like, like a renowned theater actress. I think yeah. now there's more openness to her. Yeah, kind of so oh, like, I, didn't, I didn't even think about that. Watching it now, I didn't even think about it. Yeah, I didn't totally. question it. Yeah, but then I went back and looked at reviews. Yeah, and I was like, wow, they're really hung up on the X Files, and I realized like, oh yeah, I guess that's kind of. Wow. All she was known for. I didn't even think well, yeah, I mean, at the time, like, you know, The Sopranos had just debuted the year before, you know, yeah. TV was still a very disreputable yeah. medium, and especially genre TV. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, you mentioned a documentary that he made eight years later, so this is kind of his uh, most fallow period. Um, yeah. Uh, eight years later, he made an autobiographical sort of collage documentary called Of Time in the City, um, which I just recently saw... Uh, I don't know how you say his name, Clay Berman, and so Philo's uh, Pictures of Ghosts. This is oh, sure. his new film, which is a very similar, like, autobiographical uh, documentary. Um, what's uh, the main thing I think that stuck out to me about Of Time in the City is going like, oh, Terrence Davies does have a sense of humor. Because <laughs> there's, yeah. there's not a lot of comedy in his films, but his yeah. voiceover in yeah. the documentary is often like quite wry and funny i think you get a bit of the humor in house of mirth and those especially the early scenes and i think i mean after deep blue sea there's an element of cleverness to all of his films um but yeah i, I the best thing about of time in the city to me was hearing his voice which is so rich and like deep and baritone and then kind of mixed with that with very kind of wry observations about the period yeah yeah and it's um Pretty easily, pretty easy to find, right? Yeah. I mean, all of these movies are available. If you I mean many streaming, sometimes some of them you have to rent. I know yeah. Some people, that's a huge hurdle for some reason. I, know. <laughs> um, I don't get that. But um, uh, yeah, Of Time in the City is very, very good. And also, it's 72 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. So make time for it. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, but then we move into the the second full period uh, of his career, starting with 2011's The Deep Blue Sea, the first of his movies that I ever saw, um, which means it's also the one that it's been the longest since I've seen. I haven't seen it since... It probably came out in the U.S. in 2012. It did, yeah. It was an yeah. early 2012 release. Yeah, 2012 uh, is when I when I saw it. Um, and I, I feel like it was still... Um, I mean, that was when Tom Hiddleston was like... Hot shit. Like, yeah. Right? Because this was, was a big like, period for him. Because it seemed like I went from not knowing who Tom Hiddleston was to like him being in like five movies a year. Yeah. yeah. With like... There was like this and War Horse and... I'm trying to the other things were leading up to the Avengers that I would have seen. Oh, there's the first... Well, did you see the first Thor? Oh, I did see the first Thor. Okay, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. And then uh, High Rise. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I'm not saying all these were good movies. High Rise isn't... It's awful. fine. Yeah, but... Um, yeah, now it's sad that, like, he j- he's just Loki now. I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was such an exciting actor for a, a short time there. Um the uh, Hank Williams biopic notwithstanding uh, what, Man, a, what a boring piece of <laughs> thing came and went yeah um, but yeah um, The Deep Blue Sea is I mean we're talking about Tom Hiddleston but really it's this is Rachel Weisz's movie yeah more so um, yeah. she's the lead did you watch this one I, yeah I watched it last night okay well then yeah if you've seen I would it say, more recently than I have and I would say that Tom Hiddleston at least for me is like the third lead yeah behind uh simon russell beale oh right yeah yeah uh but yeah i i I, like i said like i was saying earlier i eventually found my way to finding this movie very moving um but i've always i've been a rachel vice fan i mean i've had a crush on her at least since the mummy probably and constantine like uh she's Maybe she's one of my favorite actresses, uh, and this is a, a a great performance. Uh, but also, as someone who like loves her so much, often like hard to watch her like continue to make these uh, poor decisions for herself oh in, my. in 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 favor of this uh, this guy. What were you gonna say? Oh, just yeah. Like I feel like again. Of course, I haven't seen. Is the latest film of his that I've seen, so I, I so I really don't know as far as his entire filmography. But I think this is a good entry point. Okay. Yeah. Um, yes, it does have flashbacks and jumps around in time, but it is more dialogue driven. It is more narrative driven. The relationships are a little bit more straightforward, probably because it's based on a play. Um, so I feel like this is one that, like, if you're, if you're, like, wary for some reason of getting into his filmography, I feel like this one is accessible enough so that you can follow and enjoy it, but still has plenty of his hallmarks. Including, um, like I said, it's been 12 years since I've seen it, but I have distinct memories of the sequence when everyone's hiding in the subway oh, during, yeah. the, during the the bombing and the cameras tracking on these people and it's another like sing-along type of and, uh but very obviously not a happy one and to uh, blend that oh to blend that basically with her uh, like wanting to kill herself yeah like she goes wanting to jump 
in front of a train. And then, of course, we wind up there. And then she doesn't kill herself. And you kind of wonder, it's like, oh, these probably are related. Like, in both cases, she almost died. Uh, but very different circumstances. Yeah, so this is an adaptation of a Terrence Rattigan play. Um, Terrence Rattigan was also um, gay, and the play was in part about a, a homosexual relationship that he had um, that he almost wrote the play directly about that, but ended up kind of uh, queer coding it instead. Sure. Um, and the film was actually commissioned by like his estate or something like that, and mm. whoever produced this film thought of Terrence Davies for that's the entire reason he had to come back it wasn't this wasn't something that Davies was pursuing but he the producer saw his material and was like you know who I think would be good for this and I think he's quite right because yeah. he brings all of that texture from like the long day closes and that sense of kind of post-war life into yeah. this which all of these next few films are about people who are one way or another marked by a war. In this case, it's World War II. It takes place, uh, the opening title card says, about 1950. Around 1950. Around 1950, yeah, which I really love. I love that, yeah. And both the opening and closing shots are kind of mirrors of each other in very much establishing that sense of like post-war life that there's that all these people are in some way haunted by the war. And, and, you know, her kind of remembering this moment of hiding in the blitz is a good example of this of like there was this she goes down there to kill herself and remembers this moment where she could have died at like literally any moment yeah. i mean that's the thing that like there were bomb shelters during the blitz but like yeah if that bomb's coming on down top of you that's no right. saving you and so mm-hmm. all you could do is kind of cling to somebody close to you maybe someone could get a sing-along going and yeah. that seems interesting too because she's kind of singing along and kind of not right. and both of the sing-along scenes she's part of have that thing of like she's somewhat participating with somewhat not in yeah. the way that she's like somewhat a part of the society and even somewhat a part of her life and also standing yeah. somewhat outside of it um, but yeah and then Tom Hiddleston plays this like kind of hotshot pilot who you know, was one of those guys who had a great war career. Yeah. Um, and you hear about this with World War One too, where, like, there's these incredible ace pilots who, you know, shot down tons of enemy planes, and then they get back, and they have, like, nothing to live for. Yeah. And so he's happy to kind of seduce and destroy this yeah. beautiful woman um, who's willing to do anything for him. Um, yeah. And including sacrificing all of herself, um, but gives almost nothing of himself over. And, yeah. And, I mean, for, and like admits it yeah oh yeah no they both know the deal yeah yeah. and for a a film based on a play it has none of that kind of staginess there's like not at all maybe one extended scene i don't have a problem with that like i like very stagey films but right away you're plunged into kind of these overlapping bits of memory and flashback that all kind of feel like interspersed with one another to an extent that like you could almost read stuff that happens after the opening as just like her kind of like life flashing before her eyes like as she's dying until you find out that her suicide attempt was unsuccessful and kind of like pitifully so there's a scene where they kind of like recap her attempt and like she She took enough to knock herself out but she was yeah never really that much in danger yeah um but yeah rachel weiss is incredible in the film and it's interesting that this came out the same year as anna karenina the joe wright's adaptation because they're both about women who give up their kind of positions in society for men who really don't care for them yeah and the two films were compared a lot um they're both visually extravagant experiences to different degrees um i've come to think that this is maybe a little bit more of the refined film as much as i adore anna karenina um 
but um, I think Anna Karenina like there's certainly a lot more flourish to it. Yeah. Whereas this one is a bit more subdued. Yeah, I mean, it has, like, the Terrence Davies kind of flourishes of, like, sure. the long track of shots. I mean, the whole scene in the tunnel is a perfect example of that. Yeah. And that cut to her, like, the train passing by her and her hair kind of, like, fluttering up is yeah. far and away my favorite shot in any of his films. Oh, it's wow. breathtaking. It yeah. is pretty great. Yeah. Um, yeah I, well, I, oh, sorry. I was just going to say I don't like Anna Karenina as much as you guys, because mm-hmm. uh, especially at that period of Joe Wright, I don't like... Yeah, I don't like more like Joe Ron. I don't. Like, uh, <laughs> You're missing out. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Atonement, but, but I, I like Darkest I, Hour and Cyrano. Oh, I, do, I adore Cyrano. Yeah, I didn't love Darkest Hour. Same, but I really loved Anna Karenina. Um, and then, and I will say, like, it is a shame. Like you were saying, it's a shame that Tom Hiddleston is just Loki now. Yeah, because you see what he does in this film, and you realize like the kind of potential he has that is being i would say it's not i mean he's great as loki obviously but he's not living up to his uh full acting potential whereas here he can be tremendously charming and then also like you know the character is basically like the personification of passion and yeah. that passion is like, you know, lustful and also angry and bitter and uh, unreliable. And he's all of those things. And he's those things feasibly. Like, it's not like when one thing happens, it doesn't fit with the other things. Like, yeah. he brings all of them together in, in one complete character. Yeah. And I did love Simon Russell Beale as well, because this character is not just like the clueless stuffy unloving husband i mean he's very loving um obviously like there's some societal stuff like with his mom yeah his terrible mother yeah oh my gosh um but like you can just see the way he looks at her like this is not an abusive husband it is not a uh yeah it's not an unloving husband and it's one of those things like he's so loving that he's willing to like forgive her and I mean after a while and help her yeah so like in a way he is for her what she is for Tom Hiddleston yeah and but I I think he also and what both of them recognize is that there's a limitation to how he can express his love and you see that totally with his upbringing you like in the brief scenes with his mother you get a very clear sense of where this guy's coming from and like he's always going to be able to give his tenderness to her but never give any sense of passion to her because he just doesn't have it in him yeah and and i mean the film is obviously just the story itself is just an inherent tragedy yeah for all for all three characters because because tom hiddleston absolutely recognizes that he can't give the tenderness and devotion yeah that that people need and so it's yeah all three characters are very self-aware yeah but they also feel like there's nothing i can do about it yeah big time so there's a a certain fatalism to it i think um and the last thing i want to say about the film is just slightly building on that fatalism is uh terrence davies didn't do a lot of sex scenes but there's a kind of brief one in yeah. here that is at once very hot but also like the the 
both their bodies are so pale and I think it's like a think of lighting or color timing that like it almost feels like they're dead already it's like very wow. haunting wow maybe Tom Hiddleston was already getting ready for only lovers left alive yeah there right yeah um, by the way before we move on just I mean I know streaming shows don't really exist but Apple TV is a real black hole because I was looking up what was the last thing that Tom Hiddleston did that wasn't Loki two years ago he did a six-episode miniseries with Claire Danes on <laughs> Apple TV, all dire- all episodes directed by Cleo Bernard, who made oh, uh, wow, yeah. The Arbor and The Selfish Giant. Um, insane that I never heard about that. Two great actors, also yeah, Clement Posey and Haley. Oh, it's called The Essex Serpent. Oh, I've heard of that. Oh, okay. I didn't know anything about it, and I didn't watch it. But yeah. Yeah, Apple TV Plus, in general, is a black hole. Yeah. And I think probably because it has maybe the worst user interface it's of pretty bad any. Hmm. like it makes it makes prime video <laughs> look like fucking netflix <laughs> um uh all right well let's move on to sunset song yeah which i loved big um, fan yeah and i didn't yeah uh, i hadn't had, you didn't see this one this this is where my uh my contribution will end. Okay. So I'm going to take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> Trying not to snore into the microphone. Um, uh, so yeah, Sunset Song uh, 2015, uh, starring um, a woman whose name is Agnes Dane. Yeah, she's uh, mainly a model. Yeah. Um, she is the Scottish Olivia Thirlby. I, like, she looks so much like Olivia yeah, Thirlby. I can see that. I actually like... I, I like checked IMD to make sure it was Olivia Thirlby doing yeah. a Scottish accent, um, but uh, yeah, this is uh, again early 1900s, but feels older in many ways because it's rural Scotland. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, talk about his penchant for like depicting cruelty in a, just a terrible world yeah the first like half hour or so of this movie is real rough <laughs> yeah i mean um her father is played by peter mullen a, a yeah. great scottish actor who has a long history of playing pieces of shit <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> seems to be his his forte and uh doesn't depart from that uh, i, I did i'll say this i did not really like ozark but he's on it and okay. he's great yeah i didn't watch it yeah um yeah uh so uh again a lot of like scott was saying a lot of bad stuff happens to this young woman chris chris guthrie is the is the is the character including i mean there's like the most awful thing imaginable happens just off screen (laughs) it's like just uh referenced but uh i don't know this this isn't like a complaint so much as just an observation um because i think agnes dane is is great um, it has nothing to do with her, but after watching House of Mirth and then The Deep Blue Sea, which I didn't rewatch, but like in that order, I think Chris as a protagonist is maybe a bit less interestingly flawed than the last two women. Like it feels like Chris is mostly something that things happen to for most of the movie. Yeah, but like she's the only one of her entire family who stays with it. And I think there's something about like her willingness or ability to withstand so much um, that does point to a kind of like, I don't know if you'd call it a flaw, but it's a certain like trait. And especially by the end where 
she's lost all the people who mattered to her, all of whom have treated her poorly, but she's still very sad that they're gone. It kind of points back to the thing you guys were talking about, Disney Voice is still alive. It's like, regardless of how fraught those relationships are, they do still inform your life. And Davies is a mature enough filmmaker to not like, just like excuse all that and just make it sentimental, but still acknowledge it, you know? Yeah. Um, and the, the film, it can be, I mean, it's a hard watch for sure, but it can be terribly sweet at times too. Like, it's just, and it's also just beautiful. To yeah. Yeah. The, the Scottish countryside and everything like, yeah, I would not, uh, I would, I would happily watch this movie again. And there's a good long stretch of it where it seems like her life is going to work out. Where know, like which is, her which father, what makes, that makes it all sour, more sour. Of course. Yeah. So sad. I guess I'm just saying like, it isn't relentless, yeah. uh, misery for so long. Uh, strange fact about this film is that when it came out, it was released in simultaneous, like regular versions and with subtitles, even though it's in English because the Scottish accents were so thick. I think the, um, wherever, wherever I watched it, it was subtitled. Oh really? Uh, I don't know that I needed it. Yeah. I, I've never needed it. It's a, almost a, it's a cliche at this point that, um, it's hard to make an anti-war movie because depicting war, right. blah, blah, blah. This movie doesn't depict the war. That's the way around it. It's, a, yeah. it ends up being, I think a very strict, uh, uh, fervently anti-war movie um by just depicting what it does to the home front and also yeah. what it does to the people who go when off. he when yeah. he comes when he comes back but he, yeah even before the her husband comes back and is a changed man um the uh <laughs> the attitudes of the people in town um there's a there's a scene where the 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 priest uh played by uh an actor named mark bonner who um was on Catastrophe, the Amazon uh, series Fair. with Rob Delaney and Sharon Horgan. Very good show. Um, uh, where he's, like, using his literal pulpit to, like... Yeah. He's not really doing a sermon. He's basically just saying, like, any able-bodied, able-bodied man who doesn't sign up for the war is a coward. Yeah. Uh, and, a, and a pro-German coward at that. Uh, it's It becomes vicious, the way that the townspeople treat yeah, one another. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, very great, uh, depressing movie. I liked it a lot. Hell yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, in short, I mean... Yeah, the been, quickest turnaround in his career. Uh, yeah, just the next year, he made what I would consider the best of his American set films. Okay. Um, a Quiet Passion, where um, the great Cynthia Nixon uh, plays Emily Dickinson. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I guess he, he he sort of ended his career with two movies about poets yeah um that again i think these are the ones where you really fold the autobiography in as much as he's making about them yeah uh well because uh because emily dickens's life lends itself to a lot of different facets that intersect with his where like she didn't have any romantic relationships um she kind of led a cloistered life and her work wasn't uh celebrated in the course of her career and like she has that great line there was a great exchange with a priest at one point where um she said it comes around to saying like it would be nice to get some acknowledgement while i'm alive and like she really talks about like the fact that yeah it's great to have a posthumous legacy and all that but it's and it gives a sense that terrence davis knew that about himself too that like he knew his films would last because by this point the long day closed was a celebrated classic but it wasn't doing him any good in the present yeah. you know yeah uh this is also I, I i credit both 
Terrence Davies and Cynthia Nixon with that. You, you with this, you were saying we were talking about t- of time in the city that there's more humor in his later films. Yeah, and this this it's I think so it, funny. This is the funniest of his yeah. non documentary uh well because she has a great best friend who's just like so dismissive of everything yeah um yeah. and kind of in- inspires emily dickinson to like be a little more dismissive than even she will be um yeah and like buck uh expectations yeah and, yeah uh but also you mentioned the the priest who appreciates her work but his wife yeah. is <laughs> the biggest stick in the mud maybe in cinematic history <laughs> and emily leaving her sister alone with the yeah. wife the one scene and her sister's like <laughs> like giving her the face to be uh, like yeah but this the, this woman um she's she abstains not just from alcohol yeah. but basically anything but including lemonade water. yeah <laughs> basically like anything that gives joy is against the lord yeah so yeah. great uh but yeah um fantastic performance from cynthia nixon um whom i always think of because i obviously she's most associated with miranda from sex and yeah. the city the uh i look guys i'm a miranda so okay. uh, i've always uh, uh identified with, with miranda but also i i know her as katie Purnell from hannibal and i feel like she de- she has this carriage where she usually seems in charge right and um her emily dickinson is often so like she's iconoclastic but she's also vulnerable and unsure of herself and in many ways she's so protected that she remains girlish late in, in, yeah. into her middle age uh it's a it's a fantastic performance yeah and there's that great exchange kind of we come around to understand that she wrote like in the early morning hours when it, no one else was awake and at one point uh her sister-in-law who lives in like the house next door sees that the lights on they come over and like have a chat and emily dickinson talks about like yeah the way she's kind of built her life and the things that she doesn't have and you know her sister-in-law is kind of admiring her for like her rigor and her uh prolific output despite the poems not really catching on um and emily dickinson has a line where she's like yeah first you deceive yourself and then you deceive others into thinking that like this is enough for her um and that that's another part that seemed very like autobiographical for davies himself yeah um yeah, no, it's a very, very good movie. I was really glad that I revisited it. Um, yeah, I had not seen it until two nights ago. Um, and again, in this uh, long history of uh, not quite sympathetic fathers, yeah, uh, you've, got, you've got Keith Carradine here. He's, he's hardly, like, the most abusive. And he's like, not Pete Possibly, but yeah. He really carves out a, the chance for her to, like, flourish as an artist. Um, which I think is like an interesting way the film deals with gender roles because there's a lot in the film about how narrow her options are as a woman. Um, but also like she had, she also had the ability to stay at home through most of her life. Like for a man, they would be kicked out of the house and like made to have a career and marry and all that. Uh, You know, a man couldn't build the same kind of career at this time. Um, and career is even too small a word because like she wasn't bringing any money on it but build a life around essentially their like hobby you know yeah uh, other actors uh, the sister you mentioned is played by Jennifer L E-H-L-E uh, she's yeah, been well, was, yeah. a ton of stuff yeah I was more talking about her sister-in-law but yeah oh okay yeah um, but yes the yeah, Jennifer. But the one she leaves with the stick in the mud is that's Jennifer. True, yeah. That's right? her. Sister, that's what yeah. I was thinking. Yeah. Um, so she's been in a bunch of stuff. If you don't know who who she is, and then an actor I didn't know, 
plays her brother Austin. Duncan Duff is his name, and I thought he was fantastic as well. Yeah, he's fantastic. Um, yeah. Looking at his wiki page, it seems like he's a Scottish actor and mainly kind of sticks to his part of the world. Uh, yeah, but there's, I mean, we just got done talking about Sunset Song and the onset of World War One. Um, this takes place kind of alongside the Civil War. Uh, yeah, the Civil War breaks out at one point, and uh, there's an argument between her brother and her father about yeah. joining up. He want, The brother wants to join up, fight for his country against the, uh, the, against the South, and uh, Keith Carradine says, no, we're going to pay the $500 for someone to go yeah. in your place. Um, and it's just... Uh, I talked about uh, Emily being remaining kind of girlish into her middle age, but also like her brother by this point, like he doesn't look like a kid. He's a man. Yeah. And the way he is just like told what to do and cowed and put in his place by Keith Carradine. um, I felt bad for him. Yeah. But Keith Carradine's kind of right. I mean, like at that point he's about to be a new father. Um, He's starting his family out. I don't know that gone off to war and dying is the best uh, route for him. Yeah, I mean, it didn't work uh, in Sunset Song. Exactly. Also, like, what are people going to think of him? That's a, that's a big motivating yeah. factor as well. Yeah, and that's like one of the huge things throughout Davy's career, and which I kind of meant to mention at the top, but like, and I, I guess I mentioned throughout the episode, but just the way in which people are shaped by the society around them and not diminishing that. And I think that's something that modern viewers tend to like look down on and not recognize the ways in which society shapes all of us and that there are all these still extant rules of society that we all kind of unconsciously behave mm-hmm. around um so i don't think these things are as distant as people make them out to be or as what or as distant as people make them out to be the fa- the, the idea of um societal rules kind of like being over like we've conquered them no yeah i mean i i like i said i i very much sympathized with, yeah. with austin and, and the pressures that he felt to to go off to war yeah. um and also just because i have a hang-up about uh being made to feel or appeal or <laughs> appear like a child i would have sure i would have hated to be a my age and have a father tell me i couldn't go do something <laughs> um all right so that brings us to uh sadly the final film yeah uh benediction which came out uh i guess came out in the u.s in 2021 i think yeah no 2022 Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, so I guess... Uh, but it was a 2020... Um, I'm pro- seeing it as 2021. Oh, okay. I believe you. It looks like it premiered at TIFF that in 2021. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, and so this uh, returns us to the... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? The, that, that fucking leaf blower, like... It's really messing with your mind. my vocabulary away. Yeah. Um, uh, the overtly gay characters. I'm, overtly was not the word yeah. I'm looking for. But uh, this is a, a biopic of the uh, British poet Siegfried Sassoon. Yep. Who, unlike Emily Dickinson, I will admit, I did not know who Siegfried Sassoon was before yeah. I saw Benediction. Um but uh, anyway, I just talked about it. What do, you, what do you have to say? Oh, God. I'll, I'll have a bad introduction to this because I didn't get a chance to revisit this in full. But essentially, it's about... Um, I was hoping you did because I didn't either. I oh, no. It, uh, it's, I had since 2022. But. It's about Sassoon's uh, kind of life and career after World War One, where he comes back, um, does not want to re-enlist, and really becomes an opponent of the war because of um, 
the scars it's leaving uh, you know i mean world war one was famous for just like relentlessly sending people in to die essentially like there's no there's occasionally a strategy in play but most of the time people were just being sent pointlessly into death um and he saw all that and came back um as a staunch opponent of the war and kind of like I, i can't remember exactly but i feel like there was a sense of him coming into his own as a gay person not really like i don't get the sense that he lived that way before the war um and what I remember, really remember most about it is it kind of like uh, wrestling with the limits of a certain type of gay culture where like he's surrounded by all these incredibly clever, very charming people who are endlessly entertaining, but he doesn't really get any kind of like spiritual or emotional fulfillment out of it and doesn't really know where to put that. And that to me felt very autobiographical for Davies. Uh, yeah, there. Um, I mean, there's no there's very little it it reminds me of uh the boys in the band in some way in the way that there's like a there's a community yeah of gay men but also there's a cutthroatness to it at the same way at the same at the same time um and so um these these men are like friends but also they can't they can always trust one another. Yeah, they're all friends and potential lovers and thus potential opponents for each other's affections. Yeah. Um, and it's it's interesting to see that explored in this milieu of this t- period in time where it's like, it's not like um, the HBO series looking or whatever, where it's like a contemporary setting. To a degree, these people are all living closeted lives, probably in an environment where they can be a little more open about it, but not much you know and there's certainly no hope of like marriage at the other end the there's a sense of like um impermanence to any relationship they could get into and a sense of like finality to it yeah yeah that's uh, but that's not to say there's not marriage in the film which is um kind of a depressing yeah uh end that sort of like i don't know if i'd go so far as to say loveless but certainly a sexless uh marriage uh, yeah i mean there's a especially early on in the relationship there's a degree of affection and understanding and sympathy um but yeah definitely like it's it's kind of like where he turns to to get that sense of fulfillment that he is not finding in his gay life but also can't find it there either uh great cast um simon russell beale is in it as well um yeah i mean r.i.p julian sands is in it Mm, um i mean jack loudon in the main role i think is incredible jack loudon and um Jeremy Irvine from a second weird to mention Warhorse twice in this episode, but Jeremy Irvine from Warhorse plays or twice in a year. Yeah, <laughs> uh, he plays Ivor Novello, the only person depicted here that I had actually heard of. Sure, the actor who is the the titular lodger in Alfred Hitchcock's The right. Lodger, and uh, was played by Jeremy Northam in Gosford Park. Oh, I did not put two and two together. That was the, I haven't seen Gosford Park since it was new. I did not realize that. Um, uh, and it just, I mean, it, obviously when he, when Terrence Davies made this, he didn't know it was his last film. Um, but there is, uh, with the occasional inclusion of like stock footage from the time, yeah, it does feel like it goes back to his like early features, like especially Long Day Closes with like dropping in audio that's non-diegetic yeah. and stuff like that. It felt like it had, Benediction is... Even though I, over the course of his career, you can see his movies becoming more straightforwardly narrative, 
benediction does bring back some of these uh flourishes while maintaining all the other flourishes that 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 have been in his movies especially the uh symmetrical framing and 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 blocking um and the beautiful use of of light yeah Uh, that's that's been there the whole time yeah i do think you notice him a little bit more hemmed in in terms of the budget there's i remember a sense in which like if you point the camera like a quarter inch in either direction you'll see 2021 um (laughs) there's like very minimal sets and all that kind of thing um which is fine but it's it's kind of sad after like kind of the sweeping especially sunset song which is like so much outdoors and like huge vistas and stuff like that this is like okay davies is once again reckoning with not being a commercial force yeah Um, um I mentioned all these people in the cast, and I didn't mention Peter Capaldi, who yeah. plays the elder uh, Sassoon, and, and he's fantastic yeah. as well. And that's a um, good title, too. The elder Sassoon. <laughs> yeah, I, Tom Hiddleston was in that miniseries on Apple TV. <laughs> yeah. You didn't watch it? <laughs> Missed out. All right. Uh, Quick observation. We, we did, yeah, we did it all. Okay. Let me... Oh, sorry. Quick observation. Um, what was the name of the documentary again? Of Time and the City. Okay. So, have we ever done an episode about titles? <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it'd be worth. I love that at some point our conversations went from "we should do an episode about" to <laughs> yeah. "have we done?" An yeah. about at a certain point, it, coming up, definite, creeping up on nine hundred episodes, it yeah. does start to. There's yeah. a definite yeah. shift. Yeah. Um, because, with a couple of exceptions, I feel like I feel like Terrence Davies. Maybe, like, even his titles have an auteur quality to them. Sure. Like, they're very elegiac. Yeah. Like, okay, like, with, the, again, a couple of exceptions, but Distant Voices Still Lives, The Long Day Closes. Yeah. And then, obviously, Neon Bible and House of Mirth don't really have that quality to them. But t- Time... Of Time in the of City. Of Time in the City. And then the deep blue sea yeah a quiet passion sunset song and then benediction yeah like and a lot of it has and to also do with, don't forget death and transfiguration the the, the, the short film yeah and just like there's this quality of stillness and a quality of things ending benediction uh you know the long day closes stuff like that and it's just i don't know i didn't it's something I don't think about very often because I feel like for the most part, most filmmaker, filmmakers' titles are pretty different from one film to the next. But if you add up all of Terrence Davies' titles, again, with a couple of exceptions, uh, they all kind of add up to a very specific type of tone that I think his, his films absolutely live up to. Uh, that's a great uh, observation. I'm glad uh, that we did this. I'm glad that Tyler has discovered a new favorite filmmaker. Absolutely. Um, I look forward to you seeing some of these other films that yeah. I think you uh, would love as well. Uh, I also look forward to... Um, I think I have a, a couple of new like favorite films that might find their way onto my... If I redo my top 100, there's a sure. couple of those uh, in, in here. And then also for... Um, for rewatchability, I'm looking forward to rewatching A Quiet Passion again. It's just yeah, very fun. It's a blast. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's that. Um, thank you, Scott, for doing this with us. Um, let's see. You can find us at battleshipretention.com. Uh, you can find 
you can find reviews of some of these movies. I reviewed The Deep Blue Sea. I don't know if I stand by it. Uh, <laughs> but I also reviewed Benediction uh, much more recently, and I'm sure I stand by that. I know, I think Aaron Pinkston reviewed A Quiet Passion. Um, I know uh, Alex has written about Terrence Davies multiple yeah. times in his uh, Criterion Predictions and other things. Uh, there's a lot of Terrence Davies-related writing at BattleshipRetention.com that you can find. I, I do remember your reading your review of the deep blue sea and i agree i don't i don't think you should stand by it because <laughs> the whole time you're just complaining about the lack of sharks yeah right? well that's the yeah. key flaw yeah. yeah oh yeah i was looking for I was looking for those sharks um and uh no one gives a uh, scrambled egg recipe <laughs> <laughs> um, uh let's see yeah that's battleshipretention.com you can follow um me David on Twitter and Blue Sky at Davy Pretension on Letterboxd at David Bax. Check out my other podcast, the one where I met your mother, where I talk about a couple of TV shows with my wife. Uh, Tyler, what do you want? Um, you can find out? me at More Lessons, which is where I uh, tweet most often. Um, and then let's see. By the time this goes up, I will have a new review at Rediscover Television, uh, the blog. And it will be a uh, review slash retrospective on Fritz Lang's Sunset Street. Scarlet Street. Scarlet Street, pardon me. Um, you, got the, you got Sunset <laughs> on the brain. I do. Um, it's my favorite time of day because night's coming. Um, <laughs> but no, yeah, Scarlet Street, which is obviously a masterpiece. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, you can read my review of that. And, and I also wrote a pretty scathing review of Rebel Moon on that blog as well. Sure. Uh, and uh, don't forget Tyler's GoFundMe pinned to the top of the homepage yes. at BattleshipRetention.com. Yes, people have been very, very generous. Um, Way to go, people. And uh, But yeah, we still have a ways to go. So anything that you can, anything you can give, we'll be going towards some kind of therapy, whether it be... Well, you can watch a video that says yes. exactly where the money is going to go, That's which is right, yes, helpful. thank you. Yeah. Uh, Scott, what do you got? Uh, Twitter and Blue Sky, Roll of Tomorrow, Letterbox, Scott and I, and yeah, Battleship Pretension. I just got a review up of the new Chantal Ackerman set that Criterion put out, right. which is awesome. And yeah. All right. Well, thank you uh, at home for listening. We'll get to next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.